All right. Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see everyone. It's great to be back. Pastor Flip and Missy and Kathy and I were down in Florida last week at a conference called the, the Founders Conference. It was a good conference. We uh, all enjoyed our time together there. Uh, I wanted to tell you that the trip down and the trip back was quite an adventure. I, some of you may have heard a little bit of our story as we were uh, heading down there. Now, they were smart. They flew and so they got there in two hours. It took us 20 hours to get there. Um, we had a load of stuff that we had to drop off at our daughter's house in Jacksonville, Florida. So we had to drive. And our, our trip down uh, and back was quite an adventure. Uh, I mean, if it could have happened, it did. And so uh, Kathy was keeping a tally of the times that we were run off the road as we were driving down to Florida I think she came up with seven or eight times on the way down that we were run off the road by careless drivers or people that were on their, their cell phones texting or whatever. Uh, the Lord protected us from all of that. Our brakes went out, uh, so we uh, had to come out of pocket about $1,100 for that while we were driving down as well. Uh, and then, you know, as everything kind of cleared up, we thought, well, now it's smooth sailing. And there was this huge projectile that came out from underneath the truck that smashed into our grill of our car, broke out the grill, damaged the radiator. And I could go on and on. And it was, it was just an adventure. I mean, on the way back, we thought, you know, it can't be any worse than what it was on the way there. And on the way back, I'm in the middle lane. And uh, we're going the speed limit, and there are two trucks that come up on the sides of us. And, you know, people are nuts. They're crazy drivers. And two trucks come up on either side of us, and they decide they're going to converge at the same time. And so I had to slam on the brakes as hard. At least the brakes work because we got those fixed. <laughs> I slammed on the brakes, and the car jerked to the left. This is in the middle of an interstate traffic everywhere. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what in the world? So the Lord spared us uh, and protected us. And I want to publicly thank him for that. I mean, I was thanking the Lord the whole way down and the whole way back. But I told Kathy, we're not doing this again. I mean, if we can't fly, we ain't going. So, uh, but it was quite, uh, quite an adventure. Uh, if you've been with us over the course of the last uh, couple of months, uh, we too have been on a bit of an adventure as we have been working our way through the Gospel of John as a church. And one of the things that I want to just bring uh, to your remembrance here is that as we go through and as we study this Gospel written by the Apostle John, we need to keep in mind that it is an eyewitness account provided to us by this author the apostle that Jesus loved. Eyewitness testimony is powerful, right? And of course, eyewitness testimony is heavily relied upon in our system of justice. Years ago, I was driving down a state highway and I witnessed a driver pull out in front of another driver and cause a major wreck. And because there was an obvious dispute between the two drivers, I stuck around until the police got there and so I could give an eyewitness testimony of what I saw. And the police believed my account. They ticketed the guilty driver. Eyewitness testimony is powerful. And that's what we have when we come to the Gospel of John. All of the Gospel accounts are eyewitness accounts. John is relaying to us in great detail what he saw, what he witnessed. And we have it here in the completed Revelation of God. So the Apostle John is not only the author of the gospel, he repeatedly lets his readers know that he was with Jesus. He was an eyewitness to what we have been studying. For instance, right out of the gate, you remember in John 1, in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we get to the crucifixion account in chapter 9, in verse 35, John says, He who saw it, meaning himself, he who saw it has borne witness. 
And then at the end of this gospel account, in chapter 21 and verse 24, John says this about himself. He says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And so what we have before us is a testimonial. It's an eyewitness account from the Apostle John about the life of Jesus. And so we come to chapter 2, verses 13 through 22 today, and we have a specific account that the Apostle John wants us to know more about. And so look with me at verse 13 of John chapter 2, and I'll read all the way to verse 22, and then we'll see four observations here in the text. Okay? Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with sheep and the oxen. And then he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, and he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. So if you're going to take notes this morning, and I would encourage you to do so, there are four observations here to consider in our text, and the first one is the occasion. The occasion. Look at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Well, as we have seen, Jesus has begun his three-year public ministry. He's now moving throughout the region of Israel. He started in Cana of Galilee, where he performed his first miracle by turning water into wine at a wedding. Verse 12, the verse that precedes verse 13, says that he then went to Capernaum, which seemed to serve as the hub or the the headquarters of his three-year public ministry. Now he is in Jerusalem to partake in the Passover festivities. And so Jesus is moving around the region, impacting the lives of people. Just for a point of reference, Jerusalem is about 120 miles south of Capernaum. So you can imagine all that Jesus encountered as he traveled the country of Israel. So now Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And as you may know, there were three main feasts in Judaism, all at different times of the year. All adult males over the age of 12 were required to make the trek to Jerusalem to participate in these festivals. There was the Feast of Pentecost. And we remember in Acts chapter 2 the significance of the Feast of Pentecost, right? This is where the Holy Spirit of God, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and Peter preaches this powerful sermon, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them permanently, and that inaugurates the, 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 the church age or the age of the church. And so we move from the Old Testament age of the law to the New Testament age of the church, and all of that happened at this feast at Pentecost, and so we're aware of that right? Acts chapter 2. There's the Feast of Tabernacles, and then there is the Feast of Passover. And so Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. This was a time to remember and to celebrate what God had done in delivering uh, his, his people, his chosen people, Israel, out of Egypt and restoring them back to their land. And so John reminds us here in verse 13 that it was the Jews' Passover. It was the Passover of the Jews. This was significant because God had rescued the Jews out of the bondage in the hands of the Egyptians. You remember back in Exodus chapter 12, as punishment to the Egyptians for them taking the Israelites 
and keeping them in their country under bondage, the Lord uh, delivers 10 plagues that he brought upon the people of Egypt, right? The 10th plague, you remember, was that the Lord would kill the firstborn child of all of the Egyptians, but he would pass over the homes of the Israelites who had blood on the doorposts of their house, right? The Passover, they would, the Spirit of God would pass over those who had the blood on the doorpost, but he would take the life of the firstborn of all of the Egyptian families as punishment for having his people in, in bondage. So after all these plagues, after all of this, and after the Lord taking the firstborn of all these Egyptian families, uh, Pharaoh says, okay, I give up. You remember this, right? I give up. You can go. Moses was the chief spokesman for the Israelites, and, and uh, Moses said, let my people go. And Pharaoh finally relents, and he says, okay, you can go. And so you remember that they all, in a pack, leave uh, Egypt, and they head back to their land, the, the, the land of, 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 of Israel, and they cross the Red Sea. Moses parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk across dry land, and when they get on the other side, all of the Egyptians that were chasing after them were drowned and as the walls of the Red Sea came in on them. So Pharaoh originally says, yeah, you can go, and then he changed his mind. Hey, go get those people. Go get them. And so anyway, they all met their demise. So this is a celebration of all that God did in rescuing Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And so every year, all of the males, age 12 or older, would need to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It took place on the 15th day of Nisan, uh, which would be in, in March or April of every uh, year. So they would have a Passover meal. They would all partake in the Passover meal, and that was the remembrance and the celebration of all that God had done. So that's the occasion. Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem for the annual Passover feast. So the first observation is the occasion. The second is the order. The order. Look at verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And so we're seeing this in our mind's eye. We read the account in the Gospel of John. We're seeing all this happen in, the, in our mind's eye. And so we catch the scene here. Thousands upon thousands of Jews have flooded into Jerusalem from all over Israel and the Roman Empire to participate in the feast of the Passover. And so while Jesus and his disciples were there in Jerusalem, they visit the temple. This was to, uh, have, which was said to house the very presence of God, the temple. Uh, the temple was a holy place, right, where the Jews would worship God. And so when Jesus arrives, he finds that the outer courts of the temple were full of vendors, they're selling oxen and sheep and doves, and, and there were people at the table changing out money. So let's consider that. Thousands upon thousands of people have come into the city for Passover. And so just like today, there would be those who would want to take advantage of a situation like that to make a quick buck, right? And that's essentially what's going on here. The great problem is that these vendors are desecrating the temple by turning it into, as Jesus said here in verse 16, a house of business. Those of you who plan to travel to Israel with us in November, you're going to get a visual of what's going on here. Years ago, 
when I went to Israel, I, I landed in Tel Aviv, and I was told that I needed to go over to the currency exchange at the airport to change out my dollars to Israeli shekels, and so I did. Well, there's a fee for that. And since much of the economy of Israel is centered around tourism, you're going to see that there are vendors everywhere trying to make a buck. And that's really what's going on here. Now, what we need to know is that this wasn't an anomaly. This was something that was fulfilling a need. So because I needed to get Israeli shekels when I was going into Israel, the same would be this for those who are coming from the Roman Empire outside of Israel. There's a temple tax that would need to be paid when they came for the Passover feast, and so they needed to change out their money into Israeli currency so that they could pay the temple tax. So these people served a purpose. Those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, those people also served a purpose because the temple was a place of sacrifice. And if they'd come from a long distance, they wouldn't have brought their animals with us, so they would need to have bought the animals when they got there. And so all of these people are serving a purpose. They're all serving a purpose. The problem is that the Lord looks at the heart. Yes, they were serving a religious purpose, but their hearts were not right. They were trying as best they could to make as much money as they possibly could off these people who didn't have their own animals and didn't have their own currency. And so that's what we see here. They're jacking up the prices of the animals. They're jacking up the fees to exchange their money. And so the outside of the temple, there's an outer court, the, the Gentile court. Uh, it's full of all of these vendors. It, it looked uh, like, a, um, like a fair <laughs> or something along those lines. It, it, was, um, it had taken over the Temple Mount area. And so Jesus clears out those who are selling these animals and are charging these exorbitant fees for changing out money and he gives them all an order. He says, take those things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So you imagine the disgust of Jesus. Jesus, as the sinless son of God, he goes to the temple and he witnesses all this disgusting activity. And so he takes it upon himself to clear everything out. He flips over the tables of the money changers. He uses a scourge of cords, a big whip, to drive out all of the vendors. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up with this caricature of Jesus, this effeminate caricature of Jesus. There was a popular portrait that was done years and years and years ago that portrayed Jesus as this almost perfectly manicured, sissy-like character. You remember that picture? It was displayed on the walls of churches all over the world. I had a friend who carried this picture of Jesus in his wallet. The picture showed Jesus dressed in this sparkling white robe with this perfectly trimmed beard and this free-flowing hair. You remember the old glamour shots back in the day? I don't know if they're still popular today. Maybe it's called uh, with the Photoshopping pictures. But I remember that someone had given me a business card of a realtor, and she had her picture on the business card, and they had recommended her. And so uh, I contacted her, and when I met her, I'm like, oh! <laughs> she doesn't look anything like her picture. I was a little taken aback. Hey, Jesus was clearly not a sissy, right? I mean, he was a man's man. His whole life he had worked with his hands as a carpenter. His face was probably wrinkled and weathered from the sun. His hair was most likely just like everyone else's hair. He probably had dirt under his fingernails and dirty feet, and he wore a robe that hadn't been washed in a while. He was truly God, yes, but he was also truly man, and so using a little sanctified imagination here, Jesus isn't acting like a maniac here or someone who's out of control. No, he was so disgusted 
with what, was wit- what he was witnessing, that he acted with an authority and a resoluteness that got everyone's attention. And so with a commanding voice and a commanding presence, he makes everyone stop what they're doing, and he single-handedly clears out the temple court area. So this account is at the front end of his earthly ministry, but we find that he does the same thing again at the end of his earthly ministry, just a day or two before he goes to the cross, just prior to his triumphal entry back into Jerusalem. And let me just say this, I think you know this, but this building that we have here This is not the house of the Lord. It's a building. It was an old elementary school that we bought. It's not the the house of the Lord. The temple was referred to as the house of the Lord because it housed the presence of God, right? The reason why this is not the house of the Lord and it doesn't house the presence of God is because of what happened at the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, right? For all of those who trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, they recognize their sin before a holy God. They repent of their sin, which means they have a change of mind that results in a change of action. They recognize Jesus as the only one who could save them from their sin, This is what happened to us. We came to the end of ourselves. We realized that we cannot have a right relationship with God because of our sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we know that Jesus Christ, who we will see as we work our way through his public ministry all the way to the end of his life, he came to the earth with the purpose to die in the place of sinners, to, to save them, to redeem them from their sin, to do what they could not do for themselves. So, what we have here is Jesus will eventually die. He'll be put to death at the hands of sinful men. But these men are simply pawns in the hands of God as he, is hung, he hangs upon the cross and he takes upon himself the sins of all who would place their faith and trust in him. Then he would go to a tomb and he would be placed in a tomb and three days later he would be resurrected from the dead. And then he would spend some 40 days in a glorified body on the earth appearing to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. In Acts chapter 2, when I mentioned earlier about the Feast of Pentecost, when people trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, He then, the Spirit of God then indwells us, and we are the temple. Our bodies are the temple of God now, not a building. Not a building, but us, the church, the called out ones, the ecclesia, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Therefore, worship God with your bodies. We house the very presence of God within us. We could meet under a tree out in the yard. We're still the church. We still house the presence of God. Wherever we go, we take the presence of God with us. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory, right? We have the Spirit of God who lives in us. There's nothing holy about this. This building, when I was a kid, and you, many of you may have had the same experience as me, but when I was a kid, I was told that you're going to the house of God. You're going to the house of the Lord. <laughs> so you got to wear your best. Would you go visit a king in your jeans or in a ratty t-shirt you're going to the house of the lord they would say so you have to wear your best follow me everybody remember this but even as a young kid i was so confused because sunday nights you could wear jeans (laughs) you couldn't wear jeans sunday morning but you could wear jeans on sunday night But if it's the house of the Lord and the king's there, 
that's where the presence of God is at. What, what happened in six hours? We were able to wear clothes that we wanted to wear. You see, this is just a building, right? It's just a building. We, as the people of God, house the presence of God in us, the church. And so the economy of how God works has changed dramatically. The Old Testament was the Old Testament, the age of the law. But now we have the freedom in Christ to live for Him and to love Him and to serve Him. Third, here in verse 17, we find the Old Testament prophecy. See that in verse 17? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is a quote from uh, Psalm 69 and verse 9, and it points to the fact that Jesus would not tolerate irreverence toward God. Do we think Jesus has changed? We can only imagine the disgust that Jesus has for what he's witnessing in the world today. Like the California government officials who took out billboards in states across the country using the words of Jesus to promote abortion. Word of faith preachers using the name of Jesus to build millions of dollars out of the parishioners. You see, Jesus has a righteous indignation that we would do well to emulate. A disgust for the profane. A repelling of that which is unholy. Sadly, there are far too many who call themselves Christians, who live just like the world lives. They see unrighteousness, and they just turn a blind eye to it. They hang out with people who use the Lord's name in vain, and it doesn't really bother them. They attend churches that can really put on a show. They can keep them entertained, never challenging them on their sin, never pointing to the majesty and the holiness of the great God of the universe, who will judge the world in righteousness. They put a fish on the back of their cars and they drive with reckless abandon, acting like fools on the road. They put church on the back burner. They only attend to worship Christ when there's nothing else on the calendar. Irreverence takes many forms. And what we see here is a stark reminder that Jesus is intolerant of irreverence. And so as the Messiah... The Son of God, God in the flesh. He takes the opportunity to teach the people that God is to be worshipped and revered and praised and adored. Yes, we are to worship Him with our lips, and we have done that today as we have sung praises to our God. But we're also to worship Him with our lives. And when our lips and our lives do not coincide, we blaspheme the God that we say that we worship. We find a duality in worship in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 29, which says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. In other words, praise him with your lips. Okay? But it goes on to say, bring an offering and come before him, worship the Lord in holy attire. In other words, don't just praise him with your lips. Praise him with your actions. Paul echoes this in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Are you bringing glory to God with your life? You know, what I have found is I need constant reminders. I need constant reminders. And I, I am so grateful that I get to study God's Word each and every week and preach these messages to myself before I preach them to you. Because we can get off course. We really can. We can just succumb to what's going on in society, what other people are doing and saying and all these kinds of things. We can get our focus off of the Lord really quick. Really quick. And we can say things, oh, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm a Christian. But then when there's an examination of our lives, it's like a glamour shot. That's not who that person really is. 
they have a lot of words. They can say a lot of things. They can write a lot of stuff on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, to make people think that they're spiritual. But what's their life look like? You see, whatever we do in word or in deed, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. You see, it's more than just talk. As my dad would say, talk is cheap, right? Spurgeon said that a a man's words reckons as pennies, but his actions reckon as dollars. Now, all this brings us to verses 18 through 22 and the offer. The offer. So we have the occasion. It's the feast of the Passover in Jerusalem. We have the order. Jesus wipes out those who are uh, inappropriately selling things in the uh, outer courts of the temple in Jerusalem. We have the Old Testament prophecy where they recall back what Jesus, the, the prophecy about what Jesus would say in Psalm 69 and verse 9, and now we come to the offer, verses 18 through 22. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, it's highly unlikely that the Jews are legitimately in search of some sort of a sign to establish Jesus' authority here. Most likely, this question is tantamount to who do you think you are? Who do you really think you are? Why should we accept that you have the authority to do what you just did in clearing out the temple? Who do you think that you are? And this really is the great question, right? Who do you say that Jesus is? And let me just say, when you're talking to your friends and your family and you're getting into all these different kinds of discussions, get to Jesus. Take them to who Jesus Christ is. This was the great question, right, that was asked to Peter and the other disciples. Who do you say that I am? Because we can have some knowledge about the Bible. We can have some knowledge about theological things. But if we don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and we know who he is, what do we have? So I think that's what they're doing here. They're confronting Jesus. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And so Jesus knows this. He's way ahead of them. He turns the table on the Jews, and then he makes them an offer. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And then the Jews say, well, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Yeah, right. Now, let me say this about the temple in Jesus' day. This wasn't the original temple that Solomon built. The temple that Solomon built was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., before Christ. This is the second temple that was built under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Haggai and Zechariah. But it was Herod the Great that had led this great enhancement project on the temple, and this has been going on for decades, some 46 years. Of course, all of those reconstruction efforts led by Herod were eventually for naught because just a few decades later, the second temple was also destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So there's currently no temple in Jerusalem. There's a temple mount, area where it used to stand, but there is no temple in Jerusalem. What is there is an Islamic mosque called the Dome of the Rock. It has a gold dome at the top of this majestic facility. 
And so when we go in November, many of you are going with us to Israel in November, we will go up on the Temple Mount area and we will go near the Dome of the Rock. But because we are not Muslim, we can't go in the Dome of the Rock, but we can see it from the outside. That's where the temple used to stand. And that's where the temple will stand in the future. The Dome of the Rock will eventually be destroyed and the temple will be rebuilt in the future. Why? Because that's where Jesus will set up his millennial reign when he returns to the earth. Jesus will one day physically sit on the throne of David. So if you would, keep your finger here in John chapter 2 and turn with me back to the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. All of this is making sense. All of this is coming together. Jeremiah chapter 33, the prophet Jeremiah wrote about all of this in verses 14 through 18. He said this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch of David sprout, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety, and this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says, David shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall not lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burnt grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. So the temple will be rebuilt, and Jesus, who is the righteous branch of David mentioned here in Jeremiah 33, he will physically rule and reign from that temple in Jerusalem. It's then that he will sit on the throne of David. The throne of David is an earthly throne, not a heavenly throne. Jesus is not seated on the throne of David right now. He will be when he comes to the earth and he rules and reigns for a thousand years in Jerusalem, in the temple. And so the temple must eventually be rebuilt. So as we go back to the Gospel of John, of course, Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple here. He's speaking of the temple of his body. Look at verse 20 again. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. Verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was speaking of the temple of his body. You know, we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus often spoke with veiled language to hostile unbelievers who had no spiritual insight to understand. This is a perfect example of that. Now, in verse 22, John fast-forwards to the end of Jesus' life. But before we look at verse 22, let me take you to Matthew 26. Okay, so go with me back to the first gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So go back to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 57. Okay, so Matthew 26, verse 57 Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas. This is at the end of Jesus' life. This is the the Matthew account of the end of Jesus' life. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony about Jesus so that they might put him to death. But they did not find they did not find anything even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on two came forward and said, "This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God 
and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further do we need of these witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face. And they beat him with, their, with his, their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? So you see how it all fits together. Now let's go back to John 2 as we finish up today. Verse 22. John 2 and verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead. Now, this is a big fast forward. Okay, so Jesus is in the first year of his public ministry when all this takes place. He cleanses out the temple. He actually will do it again at the end of his ministry. But now John is fast forwarded as an eyewitness. He's fast forwarded to after Jesus had died. In verse 22, he says, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. They, they remembered that Jesus said that he will be raised up in three days. So we know how the story ends. Jesus will have another couple of years left on this earth before he would allow sinful men to put him to death on the cross of Calvary. While those sinful men were accountable for their actions, they were mere pawns in the hand of God to bring about God's redemption plan for his people. You see, Jesus came to this earth on a mission. And that mission was to live a sinless life and to die a propitiatory death in the place of sinners. As John the Baptist proclaimed about Jesus back in chapter 1 and verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see how it all fits together. Jesus came to redeem all those whom the Father had given to him, all those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. Who's the Lamb? Jesus is the Lamb. It's his book. It was given to him by the Father. He went to the cross to die in the place of all who are in the book. Paul summarized the gospel, the good news of salvation, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1 through verse 4 when he said this now i make known to you brothers and sisters the gospel which i preached to you which you also received in which you also stand by which you also are saved if you hold firmly to the word which i preached to you unless you believed in vain for i handed down to you as of first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, and on the third day it was so, and he is alive today. Jesus Christ, who did all of this for us. I mean, we're just getting a peek, a glimpse into his three-year public ministry. He lived a perfect life from the moment of his birth to his cruel death on the cross of Calvary, sinless, perfect, perfect obedience to the Father to qualify himself to be the spotless Lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world. You know, in the Old Testament system, when they would sacrifice animals, it didn't take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. It just covered them until Jesus came. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. He is the one who can take away the sins of the world. 
And I feel like there's a lot of people in our world today playing games with God. I think even in churches today, it's easy. It's easy to go to church. It's easy to say you're a Christian. It's easy. There's no persecution. There's no guards at the door. It's easy. We can come to church, say we're a Christian, and then live like whatever we want to live like the rest of the week. But that is where the scriptures come into play. You see, there's a duality in worship. It's not just what we say. It's what comes out of the heart in what we do. You see, there are a lot of people that would say they're religious. The Pharisees are a perfect example. They said, hey, we're religious. I think probably the people that were selling uh, the oxen and the sheep and the doves and those who were changing out the money, I think they thought they were doing a service, a religious service. Their hearts weren't right. Man looks on the outside appearance. The, the Lord looks at the heart. What are we going to do with this gospel? If you're here today, you just heard how to come to faith in Jesus Christ, how to go to heaven to be with him forever. Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. John 14 says, tells us what Jesus is doing now, seated at the right hand of the Father, while at the same time, He's preparing this glorious place for us in heaven for all who, will, who place his faith, their faith and trust in Him. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is long-suffering. But He will one day come and He'll take all those people who've trusted in him, back to him in glory. And then what? How about the people that were all about the words? And then what? I have relatives that are all about the words. A lot of words. People in my neighborhood. A lot of words. How will they come to faith in Jesus unless we tell them. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. How will they hear without someone who tells them? Folks, we, we need a renewed passion for telling people of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, preparing this beautiful place for those who will place their faith and trust in Him. And so today, let me ask you, where are you at with Jesus? Where are you at? You see, without the resurrection, our faith is worthless, Scripture says. But because Jesus was resurrected and is alive, we're going to all stand before him one day. Then all the words are going to mean nothing because Jesus knows the heart. You see, Jesus knows everything about us. Have you trusted in Christ? This Christ. This Jesus. Have you trusted in him? You know, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. I mean, honestly, if we look at our lives and we go, why would Jesus want to have anything to do with us? We're sinners. I mean, we're bad. We're bad sinners. Oh, we can put on some nice clothes and we can say some nice words, but we're sinners, all of us. And yet, in his great love for us. God sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and to die in our place, to take the penalty upon himself for all who would place their faith and trust in him. Where are you at? With Jesus. Where are those people in your life at? We have 
the medicine that a dying world needs. We have the gospel. It's an amazing account. Jesus shows us that I don't like pretenders. These people that pretend to be religious, to make an extra buck or whatever, don't try that with him. Jesus knows the heart. He knows the heart. And I am so humbled that he would even think about me and save me from my sin. Blows me away every day. Every day I think about it. And that's the truth. Every day I think about, I am nothing special. And yet God is special. And he's poured out his electing love on a whole bunch of people. Are we living like it? Are we living in appreciation for what God has done for us in Christ? Where are you at with the Lord? Lord, we look at a passage like this and we go, wow. Uh, you show who you really are. You show your authority as you went to the, the temple area and you clear out these people whose hearts are not right that are there to make a quick buck on the backs of a religious people. It's a reminder for us that you see all of it. You see our hearts. You hear our words. You watch our actions. You know us inside and out. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone who is here today that doesn't know Jesus as Savior. Today is the day of salvation. You tell us that we are to repent of our sin and to put our faith and trust in Christ, the only one who can uh, propitiate your wrath and save us, redeem us, purchase us out of the slave market of sin. By grace, through faith, in Jesus and in him alone. So I'm praying today, Lord, that if there's someone here that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, that today would be the day that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then for the rest of us, many of us have been Christians for a long, long time. And if, if anything else, as we go through the Gospel of John, it's, it's a constant wake-up call for us to live our lives in accordance with what He has done for us. We see all of the things that He went through for us that should matter in how we live for him. And so may we live for Jesus all the days of our lives, not just in word, but in deed, bringing all things to him for his honor and for his glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.